I was reading church, doing a crash course on church history again, my mind started be going into overload, and um, I started, I don't know doing what, but um, I started crashing, I guess, and I started realizing how small I am in this world. And I guess I was a little humbled. Uh, my opinions are pretty small. My little beachy world right here in Lancaster County is pretty small, and I have such a small place in history. Um, and I also realized that, of course, first what came to my thought was how big of a God we have. And there's a lot of giants in church history, um, a lot of mistakes, a lot of good people. And I look at back at the persecuted church, and, and then I get, we get into some of the creeds and councils, and then the desert people, and then the Re Reformation. And some of the men through that time, and women, um, just stood really, really big. But I also realized that, you know, we have a God that's so much bigger than this, um, that understands this and despite all the mistakes and despite all the, my mistakes and your mistakes, we have a God that's bigger. And our opinions are pretty small in the realm of the greater whole world. And yet, God's looking for us to dig into his word and to learn and to have an opinion and to take his word and, and see, do the best we can with his word. And that's what we're trying to do, right? Right here at Weavertown. And that's what people are doing, Christians are doing throughout the world. Um, it doesn't always look the same. Um, and if you read our story a thousand years later, I'm sure there'll be a critiquing of our story here at Weavertown. Some good and some bad, I'm sure. Um, but that's kind of how life is. But God is asking us to continue to dig in, continue to make an impact where we are at. Okay, I'm going to get into our lesson. Um, yesterday, we talked about two things. Does anybody remember? Well, first of all, I'm going to ask the question again. What is history? Three things. Stories. Stories. What else? Okay, and I'm going to come back to that. What else is it? People. And I use the word dates, and I think maybe a better word is events, but then events and stories kind of become the same thing. Um, but events kind of gives it a bigger picture, and maybe a, a better picture. What were the two events we talked about yesterday? Now, this is where we're going to stretch our mind and see if we can become a little more intellectual and scholarly. And if we have a test, these two will be on the test. Two very important events. I call them watermarks. In church history, probably, well, anyway, I was going to say probably just a few of us remembered it, but let's see how few, or see if we have some that do remember. Two events. One happened in 313. It is a, what's that? Okay, that's not the first one, though, but the first one in 313. Do we know what it was actually called? Edict of Milan. Edict of Milan, yes, 313. And that was, who was the character, the major character in 313? Constantine, okay, major character, changed the world. I'm going to talk about that just a little bit because I, I think I'm going to review it. And, and who, what was the other one? My mom said it was a creed on the Trinity or maybe a more of a creed or edict on the, um, sovereign, the, the um, sovereignty of God, and which Trinity, um, divinity of God is what I wanted, okay? God being Jesus and God being divine, or I should say maybe divinity of Jesus. What was that called? Council of, Council of Nicaea. 
And that, that was such an important time that you have the anti-Council of Nicaea was the years before that, and the post-Council of Nicaea is the years after that. It's a landmark. It's a big time in history. Now, I'm going to ask you another question. And I've got to ask this question because as I went home last night, I guess I hung my head a little bit because my son, who's younger son, third born, who's fairly scholarly and likes history, he said, Dad, what, what were you talking about yesterday or tonight? He said, what, what's that have to do with history? How important really is that? And I was like, well, I guess I didn't accomplish what I wanted to last night. So we're just going to cover a little more. And I'm going to ask you the question. How did the Council of Nicaea, how is it affecting us today? Does that affect us today? I said it's very important. Most historians, especially church historians, even outside of church historians, they would say that was a pretty major point in the world, but especially in the church. How does that affect us today? There's a couple of things here, and maybe some things I didn't point out I'm going to bring, bring up. Well, I think it helped protect what the church always believed okay. about who God was. That's right. And it's interesting, if you go back in the early church fathers before that, first 300 years, they all agreed with Athenius, okay, that Jesus was divine. He was the same as God, okay, divine. And we have to, and that is, by the way, that creed or that edict is found in every Christian church. Us, every, if you're a Christian church, you understand that Jesus is divine. He's, he's God, and he's also the Son, and they're two in one, okay? Every Christian church agrees with that. So it became an, a, a doctrine that's still around today in every Christian church. Anything else about that that you think is important or, or does, that it matters? It was one of the first times that a group of church leaders like that came together and made a decision and put a stake in the ground and said, this is how we believe as Christians. Okay? And we still have it today, which tells me, well, after almost 2,000 years, we still have that today. also helps me believe that, yes, God's going to continue to be with us for. Um, as long as my, I live and, and until the world comes to an end. Um, anything else? Okay, let's go to the next question. How did Constantine's decision affect us today? Now, this might be a little more interesting. Constantine, he was the emperor, and he decided we're going to quit persecuting Christians, and I told you the story. You know, he was about to cross the um, bridge, and he got this vision, and after that, he became a Christian, quote, and he um, changed the world and stopped what he stopped persecuting the Christians. And for many years, Christians were not persecuted. And for many years, Christianity became the center of the world rather than a few people. Now, how did that affect us today? Good and bad. Maybe we should start with the good. If you were, maybe, yeah, somebody. What was the good for that for us today? And we as Anabaptists or Mennonites are very skeptical of Constantine, so maybe we won't have find any good. Maybe I, I'll give you a few seconds to answer that, and if you can't answer, I'll ask you another question. What was the good? For sure, it's good that we don't hold the Sabbath anymore, um, but it separated us from the Jews. Okay. 
Okay, and that was going a little before that, but sure, that might have been a part of it, yeah. I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you love the country you live in? A lot of religious freedom, right? Are we thankful for religious freedom? We all say yes. Absolutely. Do you think the Christians at that time were any felt any different about the religious freedom? Should have they felt any different? Of course not. And I could maybe help us see Constantine in a different light. Most of us have heard of Donald Trump. I won't ask you if you like him, but I think most of us agree with a lot of his policies and kind of think he's a pretty good president. Most of us know who George Washington is. Pretty good president. Most of us love America, and we for sure like the, one of the first things found in our um, Bill of Rights, which is what? We have what? I guess we're not history students here. Freedom of religion, okay? And we're all thankful for that. Now, we don't know what that's going to... We only have, what, 300 years of that right now? 300 years of it, okay? We don't know what's going to happen in the next 500 years because of that. Now, we're starting to get glimpses of how it's affecting Christianity. But because we're right in the middle of this Christianity, we think it's, we can worship pretty good, and we're pretty good people. But is it affecting us in a good way? How about the prosperity of Trump and the prosperity of our, our capitalistic government? Is it a good thing? Of course it is. We love it. Let's go back to the question. What were the good things that were affected by Constantine? And Constantine, for all extensive purposes, was a pretty good man. A lot better than a lot of the emperors before him. Claimed to be a Christian. Does that sound familiar? Um, what were the good things? Religious freedom, absolutely. We can't call that a bad thing. You go over to China or you go over to any country that didn't have religious freedom and you accept and they get a president or emperor that gives us religious freedom, you would be very, very thankful. Anything else? I'm assuming that more people heard the gospel message. Absolutely. Yes. A little gets watered down after a bit, which we find out in the next thousand years, right? Well, we're going to leave that one go because we're talking about the positive. <laughs> so if Trump allows Christianity and requires... Now, that required Christian thing is a little twisted that we as Mennonites like to say that. That's not really true. He didn't require everybody to become a Christian. Uh, you hear the stories of, of he made his army be baptized. There may have been a little bit of truth to that, but it gets watered down a little bit too. Come on, we can just say religious faith. What else? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a wonderful thing. Kind of reminds me of some of the things Trump's doing. You know, it's pretty wonderful, right? I think. Against abortion, some of those things. What else? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, a church foundation could be built in a way that wasn't built before. Are we thankful? They could come to church. Aren't we thankful for that? Well, I'll tell you, you're a quiet crowd when it comes to this. Maybe you're good Mennonites and don't like Constantine, but think about it. There was many, many good things. If you were living in that day, there were so many values that Constantine gave the church. 
And I know we're looking back in history and we're just being critical and we find many, many critical things, which that's okay. We're going to go there in a bit. But there were so many good things. And if we want to be critical of Constantine, then we're going to have to be critical of our religious freedom. Okay? Right? Am I being fair? I think I am. So we, after we're critical of Constantine, we're going to think a little bit about our criticism. Yeah. Why do, every, why do other countries think we're a Christian country? I don't know. Do we act Christian or? Because we say we are, just like Constantine, right? You could. Okay, our forefathers were all Christians, kind of like Constantine was. I know that wouldn't be accepted in some Baptist churches. Um, that eh, probably would be, though. They would probably agree with that. Anyway, so what... I think I dug deep enough. What were the problems that Constantine... And it's not fair to say Constantine. That happened because of religious freedom. It moved towards the state church. Before Constantine, Christians didn't go to war. Not many, anyways. You could find some sparse and a good Baptist may find some cases in church history for the first 300 years where Christians went to war. But most all of the fathers that we, the early church fathers that we spoke of already, would spoke against going to war. And there's many writings about it. Now we have most Christians say it's a good thing. So pacifism or non-resistance was definitely lost. Not immediately, okay? It took a couple hundred years, but it was definitely lost. What else? Okay, it didn't become a lifestyle for the people as it kept on going. It would become something of becoming a member of the church that you eventually were required to become. In fact, eventually the whole, in order to be a part, by the time of Augustine, in order to be in the army, you had to be a Christian. Before this, you weren't Christians if you were in the army. Now that was a couple hundred years later. And, and yes, church membership. What else? Look at our church today, and I think it'd be, a, I mean, hope we, not, hopefully I'm not being reflective. We were but look at the church, evangelical church today. What do you see? When divorce rate is the same as between, quote, Christians as non-Christians, we got a problem, right? It's higher in the church than outside the church, in fact, is what, I, what I've heard. Why? That started happening after Constantine. Now, now we better step on our toes a little harder. What else came to the Christians after Constantine? You? Sure. Some other things that started happening is wealth got money really got involved. Being a Christian helped you become richer. It's not that way today, though, or is it? Maybe. Um, so I think there's some similarities, and, and I didn't want to. That's not really what I was going to get into. But but after Constantine's decision, um, the edict or the um, 
Edict Milan, that decision had some major effects on the rest of, on the history of Christianity for the next um, thousand years. Well, to, today, we still have the effects of that. One of the major other effects that happened is the church leaders at that time, before Christianity, were strong bishops, okay? They, they had bishops that were strong, and yet because of persecution, because of things that went on, the church did not, they disciplined by um, excommunication, but they did not discipline. What happened at the Council of Nicene? An interesting thing happened. Athenius was exiled, he had to leave. And anybody that believed like Athenius had to be exiled. So the church discipline became more than just excommunication. It actually became a discipline of force. And as the history goes on, we have the popes, which, by the way, how did popes become called? How did the Roman Catholic Church, or how, how did, why did they become bishops and then popes in the Catholic Church? Rome was the most important center of the Christian world at that time. And when Rome became the most important center, the bishop of Rome became the most important person in the Christian center. And when it became the most important part of the whole world, the church and Rome, he became the pope. Okay? So the bishop of Rome became the pope. And another thing that was happening in the Catholic or in the church at that time is Catholicism created a means of control. And when, by the time we get into the Dark Ages, the, the bishops and the, and the um, leaders of the church were very, very powerful and controlling, and it was top-down. Early church wasn't that way, but it became a very much of a top-down belief system. Okay, let's move on um, to the next, next era. And after we have um, the creeds and councils, and, and believe me, there's about 20 more councils after the Council of Nicene. And, and a lot of good things happen in some of these councils. Um, but then after that time, we get to the time of what we'll say the desert, um, we'll call it um, the desert people. And there was many leaders, and Anthony was the first of these leaders. He was a very wealthy man, um, and he was told at a young age... Um, said, if you want to be perfect, sell all you have and give it to the poor. And he did that. And he gave all his money to the poor, and he moved in the desert. And he became very um, strict with his Christianity. And he used the word, and some of you can probably um, have heard of this word, asceticism. That word was created over that time. What does that mean? Does anybody here know what that means? I didn't know what that meant till well, I would have heard of the word, but didn't really understand it until I had to teach um, church history. What's asceticism? An interesting word, a very interesting word to teach 10th and 11th graders. Um, what do you think that word means? Somebody. Is there somebody here that knows what it means? Restricting yourself of things that make you look more spiritual. Okay, of things. That's, I think that's very well said. Restricting yourselves of things that make you look real spiritual. And, and, and Anthony was one of the first of these. He was actually before... Um, the Edict of Milan, and, and the, he was in about the, thir, uh, about the 300, three, his life was about the 300 to 350. And he was actually moved into the desert and became an extreme asceticism. And he started what we have today as the um, monasteries. Have you ever heard of monastery? Um, and the convents. Now, I had an education of that when I went to Haiti as a young man, about 20 years old. And I Soon after I went down there, I was working for Water for Life, I went to the AIDS 
uh, it was called the AIDS Hospital. And it was at that AIDS hospital. We had a well there, so we had to fix it up. And every once in a while, we, got, we would go there and we'd fix up their well um, for the nuns that worked at that AIDS hospital. These women were incredible women. They were taking care of the lowest of lowest. We came there, and there was dead bodies laying beside their monastery of AIDS victims that had died that day. And it wasn't unusual. You'd see a couple dead bodies laying there. They were taking care of these people till they died. Um, these were the nuns in their monasteries. They gave up everything. A few years or a few months later, I went out to the country and we were drilling wells. And we actually were drilling wells for a Catholic um, monastery. So we stayed in a con- convent um, and w- I was sleeping there that morning. And all of a sudden I heard this noise and it was the nuns waking up at four o'clock in the morning and praying. Um, and then a few weeks later, I stayed with a Catholic priest um, who took us around and we were drilling wells for, for them too. And took us around and the Haitian people loved this man. He was a man probably 30 years old. He was giving his whole life for the Haitian people. They loved him. He was reared and he was, he was one of the most respected men in, um, in that area because of his devotion to the people of Haiti. Saying all that, that's what was going on in this time period. And because of some of the things that were going on in the church, people started reacting and saying, you know what, we have to become more holy and more perfect. And in the next 300 years, you had a group of people in the church that would take extreme measures. The next man I want to talk about was Simon the Stylite. And this man was a very interesting man. Has anybody heard of him? What can you tell me about him? Um, Gideon. You probably remember some good stuff though, right? He was probably the most extreme of all these fathers. And he decided that he had moved to the desert and he wanted to, he worked in a convent or convent, he worked in a, a convent and it was, he says, too nice here. I can't, and this convent was very, very strict. He says, too nice here, I have to get stricter. So he moved out to the desert and he was starving himself in the desert when they found him. He would stand for hours and hours standing up, for days sometimes standing up just to torture himself um, against all the evils and sins of the world. He finally built himself a, a tower, nine feet tall, and he lived on this little box in the tower. And eventually the tower grew to up to 50 feet. Um, and he lived in this tower for 40 years. And they said his tower, I read one place that said his tower was one meter by one meter. And I've heard other people say it was about the size of a small room. Um, not sure. And then people would come and he became very, very popular. He became a celebrity of the day. And he, people would come and he preached to him. And by the time he died, there was towers and um, all over the desert of people living on these little extreme towers, um, trying to um, find their way to God. Interesting, I asked my students at Faith when I taught, what do you think about asceticism? And most of them think it's the most ridiculous thing in the world that a person would discipline themselves for the sake of Christ. Now, like you'll find out with many things, there's a ditch in both sides, right? Um, And I'd say, and I told my students, I think we're not in the ditch of asceticism very much here at our school. I said, we're probably in the other ditch where we think anybody can be a Christian. It doesn't take any discipline. We can just live our life like we want and call ourselves Christian. That would probably be the other ditch. Um, Anyways, next man I want to talk about was 
um, a very important man in church history, and his name was Augustine of, Augustine of Hippo. He was the bishop of a town called Hippo, and he became um, one of the greatest theologians in the um, early church. He came to importance sometime after Constantine, and he had a profound conversion, and I'm not going to get into his conversion experience, and some would call him the greatest theologian in the Western church. Now, we as Mennonites have a lot of skepticism for him, but most evangelicals will hold him as a very important early church father. I'm not here to, I'm not going to get into, um, con- or into Augustine a whole lot, um, but yeah, he was a very well, and what he was known for was his doctrine. He wrote lots and lots of doctrine that evangelicals, and I'm sure we still hear and listen to, um, at least to a degree, even in our church. He also fought heresy and tried to keep the orthodox Christianity. But by the time things were really changing, but by this time things were really changing in the church. Instead of focusing on life and ministry of Jesus, the church shifted towards giving primary attention to doctrine. Let me ask you a question. Is doctrine important? Or is life and ministry just important? What should Christians do? Norman, you're smiling. Give me an answer because I think you have one for me. Is doctrine more important or is living more important? As a good Mennonite, you need to say what? <laughs> I, <laughs> I appreciate that. I, 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 Norman, you didn't respond at all yet, though. Okay. <laughs> and we are so perfectly balanced that we were town. I appreciate us very much that way. No, <laughs> I do think, I, I do, I will say, I, I do feel that, that we have um, tried to keep a balance here at Weavertown. Now, I'm sure we're not perfectly balanced and we're not straight down the middle. But I think, as a Christian, doctrine is important. Um, and evangelicals probably spend more time on doctrine than they do living. And it really, when you get to the Reformation, you really find out that was the difference. I want to say something very clear. Our forefathers, our Anabaptist forefathers, believed in doctrine. They really did. And unlike what some people like to say, that they just believed in living, they were very strong on understanding salvation and teaching it. But they also believed life, uh, living goes along with that. It's not just a thing of the head. It's a thing of, of living. Anyways, um, Augustine was a big on doctrine, probably not as big on living. Well, early church while early Christians were a persecuted minority worshiping in secret, now they had met in beautiful church buildings. While new converts in the first century underwent significant training, I'm talking about the persecuted church. While new converts in the first centuries underwent significant training, received adult baptism and joined a, and joined a community of believers, now infants were being Baptized, and all citizens except Jews belong to the church aligned with the government. That was some of the changes that was going on by the time Augustine came along. Whereas the early church emphasized following Jesus, now the focus was on correct doctrine, elaborate rituals, defending themselves against enemies. While members in the early church had shared their faith daily with their neighbors, new evangelism meant primarily extending borders of the Christian empire. That's what was happening after Constantine. While the majority of early Christians before the, 
before the hundred years after Constantine, before and a hundred years after Constantine, had rejected military service. By the time Augustine's death, only Christians were permitted in the Roman army. So things were changing. And that brings us to the next year. We're going to get away from desert fathers to the next 1,000 years. And that's a dark time in history called what? Somebody. The Dark Ages. It's when the plagues were. It's when the Crusades were. It's when the Inquisition was. And I'm not going to get into that. That was horrible, horrible torture that was going to, quote, heretics, mostly Christians, um, by the church itself was torturing many, many people. They had horrible ways of torture. By the way, I want to ask this question. How many of you here have read The Martyr's Mirror in the last year? I have one hand. Wow. There's a lot of sad stories in the world history, or in church history books, but if you read The Martyr's Mirror, you're going to read things that are going to be hard for you to read, and I encourage you to do that. Um, because I think we forget about that. Now, we might be reading um, Voice of the Martyrs and some other things, but we're probably missing um, some very important things. Throughout this time, well, maybe I should say a very important thing that happened in 410 A.D. Does anybody know what it was? 410 A.D.? It was the fall of Rome. And after Rome fell, it still kept the church in Rome. Um, the church still had its center in Rome. But after the fall of Rome, bar- barbarians started moving into what was most of the Western world. And chaos started erupting. And there was a lot of, lot of bad things. Crusaders, the knights. Um, there was very little control by central governments. Um, and this was happening for about a thousand years. A lot of things happened in this thousand years. And I, obviously, I'm just going to touch the surface. But some good things were happening over that time. We call it the Dark Ages. There were some very good men. Men like Peter Waldo, the Waldatians. Men like John Huss and the Hussites. Um, men like John Wycliffe, who translated the Bible in 1340 into English. And it was very interesting. We think of Rome and we think of the Mediterranean as where the apostles, the gospel went to England. And I'm so thankful for that. Um, And England was kind of the center of change. Um, And it became a Protestant nation at at some point. Um, But men like John Wycliffe, who translated the Bible into English, made a major difference. England became more moderate or more acceptant of, of Protestantism than any other place. John Huss was burned at the stake. And before his last words, before he was burned, he said, in the next hundred years, there's going to be a change in the church. And that was prophetic um, prophecy from John Huss because a hundred years later, the Reformation, uh, or within a hundred years, we had the Reformation. Now, obviously, we don't have enough of time to talk about Martin Luther and the Reformation in the next five minutes, even though I have that in my notes. But we go from... Um, the years, a hundred years of, of dark age, a thousand years of dark ages into the Reformation. But before the Reformation, there was something interesting that took place. And I love this period of history. It's called the Enlightenment and the Renaissance years. It's when people started waking up. Now, was the Enlightenment and an waking up, is that a good word? What else happened during the Enlightenment and the waking up? Like everything, there's ditches. Sciences started taking place. They started finding cures for things in science. Um, Great, great Christian scientists um, found some very important things over this time. Um, People started waking up in their knowledge. 
People started inventing things. It started bringing about the Industrial Revolution, which happened a few years later. But wealth started coming about again. People believed in themselves. And what other religion took started at that point? Does anybody know? Humanism was found at that time. People started believing in themselves. So in every good thing, there usually is a bad, um, and that was one of the things that would happen. But because of the Enlightenment, people were more willing and ready to take and accept new ideas when it came to the church, too. And that gave the opportunity for men like Martin Luther at that point um, to move forward. Did the bell ring yet? I have five more minutes. First one did ring. Okay. Baptizing babies started soon after Constantine. Now, I don't know exactly when, but by the time of Augustine, which would have been um, around three or 400, they were starting to baptize babies. Now, that wasn't forced baptism of babies till later, but they, yeah. Even though the world was waking up and becoming alive, a lot of instability was created. This was the beginning of the church reformation, but also the beginning of humanism. We can do this without God. Man is now in focus versus God. And before that, despite the church being evil in a lot of ways, the focus was still on God. I mean, maybe in a twisted way, but it was on the church. The church was the center of all societies before the um, Enlightenment. Church was found everywhere. The bishops had, much, uh, the bishops had more control than the, than the um, politicians. But you found a church in almost every city. Well, every city had a church in the Western world. Um, and that was, but the problem were the churches were not havens of people leading people to God. It's also important to understand these men who were about to lead the Reformation were not humanist, okay? They were Catholic. They were Orthodox church leaders who weren't about to throw away church doctrine, but they wanted to reform the church. I want to make that point again. It's very interesting. The point I want to say there is these men like Martin Luther, Zwingli, Conrad Grebel, and, and, and um, even Men of Simons, they were not radical humanists coming up with new ideas, unlike what we think. They were church people who believed in their church and yet wanted to clean up their church, and that they accomplished. Um, some to greater degree than others, but they were they believed in the orthodox of the uh, the orthodox of the church. And what do I mean by that? That's kind of an interesting word. The orthodox of the church. They believed that the church had a lot of creeds and councils that were right. Okay, they weren't going to throw everything away. They just saw the corruption that was happening in the church and wanted to clean that up. Um, if they would have been men of you would call humanists with radical ideas. And today you have leaders, church leaders, with some radical, radical ideas trying to change the orthodoxy of the church, which is extremely scary. Um, these men did change a lot in the church, but they weren't trying to change the core values and beliefs of the church. Okay, I guess I didn't get near as far as I want to, but the last section that I think we're going to have a chance to learn about is the Reformers. By the way, there was three major Reformers and then the Anabaptists. Does anybody know who those three Reformers were? Let's catch these three names. If you want to study those three names before you come back, who were the three Reformers? I may name one already. Okay, now he was an Anabaptist Reformer. He, I won't 
I didn't, I don't have him in that group. You have the th three main reformers, and then you have the Anabaptists. Who were the three main reformers? Martin Luther, and he came from what area? Worms, Germans. Germs, Worms, Germany, yes. Who was the other reformer? Zwingli, and the, where did Zwingli come from? And what area did he control? When we talk about Martin Luther in Germany, eventually the, Cal, or the Lutherans controlled all of Germany. And Zwingli, and these were all leaders, reformers, who also were politicians, actually. Um, who was the next one? He was not from Switzerland. Yes, he was. I'm sorry. You said Zwingli? From Switzerland. Yes, he was from Switzerland. And who was the other reformer? He came about a generation later. No, the Anabaptist. John Calvin. John Calvin. And what area did he come from? You know, He was actually from France, but he moved to Geneva, and his area was Geneva. These three men love to spend more time talking about. They were all very distinctly different in many ways. John Calvin was a very strict man more as far as how he believed Christians should live. He believed in a very strict, cleaned-up church. Martin Luther was the opposite. He actually was a drunkard himself. Um, and he was not about... He, he made the comment that the more we sin, the more God gives us grace. So sin a lot. Um, now... He did many great things for, for the Reformation, and, and I do want to talk about some of those things.